0: Good morning. Good morning. This morning I'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 44 to 46. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Good morning. How's everyone doing? (laughs) All right. Uh, Let me pray real quick. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We ask that your spirit would come right now and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Back when I lived in Oregon, I volunteered for search and rescue. It was one of the funner experiences of my life. I really enjoyed it. And I I remember being on one particular mission. Uh, We were looking for a mother and her, I can't remember if it was five or six-year-old daughter, and their story was fairly common, very typical of the kinds of things we would be um, called out for. It was around this time of year, October, November, and they had gone up to the foothills of some of the surrounding mountains, and I can't remember if they were going hunting or hiking, but uh, in either case, they kind of just stepped away from the truck with the intent oh, we'll, we'll be back in just a second, and uh, they didn't, and as the sun set, it got colder, and it started to rain, and uh, they're not dressed for the weather. They're in, like, jeans and a sweatshirt. That's not good rain, dark, cold clothing, and luckily, uh, the mother had enough cell phone service uh, to call 911, and so we're sent out there. It was a few of us uh, volunteers and a sheriff deputy, And it was the sheriff deputy who ended up finding uh, the woman and her daughter, and so they were found safe, um, but they were very cold, and they had obviously been very shaken and scared by the experience. And on the way back down the mountain, they were driving or riding in the same truck that I was in, along with uh, two other search and rescue volunteers. Now, one of the volunteers, he'd been doing it for quite a while, and so um, he was pretty thoughtful and sensitive for this little girl. He had... Um, because he knew we were looking for a five or six year old girl, he brought hot cocoa with him so that when we found her, she would have some hot cocoa uh, and he gave her his coat so that she'd be kind of warmed up on the way down. And then he made sure that we kept the uh, light in the cab of the truck on all the way down the mountain. And I remember thinking, well, the cocoa and the coat make sense. You know, warming her up and trying to kind of um, get her body back to a healthy spot. But the light, in terms of her physical body, really wasn't providing any sort of warmth. It really wasn't doing anything in terms of health. But it was really important. Uh, It it provided this sense of safety and security, uh, this protection, this I'm okay sort of feeling. And for this little girl, being found uh, meant being in the light. In fact, I remember uh, in our training for search and rescue, they told us, hey, if you've hiked in a couple of miles and you found someone who's been lost you know, overnight and they haven't eaten, don't just say, all right, hop up. We're going to hike three miles out. Build a fire, give them some food, give them some water. And I remember our instructor saying the fire is extremely important. Even if it's daytime, build a fire uh, because it'll provide warmth, yes, for their body, but there's a whole lot of psychological things that go into that fire being there. It provides, again, a sense of comfort, safety. I'm okay. I can trust this person. And the point is that in the world of search and rescue, light is good. Dark is bad. I don't know if any of you have ever been lost in the dark, but it's not fun. It's a terrifying experience. It's not like hide and seek. It's like scary. And uh, in the world of the Bible, Uh, you have the same sort of dynamic. Light is good, dark is bad. And the imagery of light and darkness, it's all over the Bible. And it's especially prevalent in John's writings. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Uh, It's in John chapter 12. Barb read it for us. So if you've got a Bible, um, open it to John chapter 12. It's also in the worship folder in front of you. Uh, But it's important for anyone who's going to be a disciple of Jesus or a follower of Jesus to understand some of this imagery because Jesus himself will use the imagery of light and darkness to teach us what it means to follow him. And we're going to be looking at this passage that Jesus, uh, or this statement that Jesus makes this morning. And so he's going to tell us what it means to live in the light in terms of our relationship with God. Now if you remember, just a quick recap, uh, we're in a four-part series on discipleship. And so last week was the first one, today we're in the second part, and last week we talked about discipleship as a process of transformation, where God changes you into more and more into the person of Jesus Christ. You start to look, think, act, and feel more like Christ. And it starts with this experience of tasting and seeing that God is good, believing in his goodness, and loving him and adoring him for that. And so we'll take up uh, what Jesus says here. And I'm not going to reread it because Barb already had it for us. But if you've got your Bible open, it would be good for you to be looking at uh, this passage as I'm preaching because I'll just be kind of jumping back to it here and there. But you see the first sentence he says here is that when a man believes in me, he does not believe only in me, but in the one who sent me. And in the same way a person who sees me sees the one who sent me. Now Jesus is very clear here that he, uh, he didn't come to earth here on his own. He was in fact sent here. And he was sent here in part to show us what God is like. Now, built into the statements that Jesus makes is an implicit assumption that becomes explicit in other areas of the Bible. And that is namely that we on our own don't believe and that we can't see. He's assuming a default condition of unbelief and blindness, and that to change that, you need Jesus. That's why he was sent here. It's what he refers to as darkness in the next verse. And the same assumption, it's actually built into our church mission statement. If you think about it, when we say that our purpose is to connect people to the God who made them, what are we already assuming about people? That they're not connected currently, right? Right? Now, that goes against a pretty popular ethos of our culture, namely that most people are basically decent and good, and it's sort of taken for granted that we're all in good standing with God and it's all fine and good and it's okay. But it's not. The Bible says that we are stuck in unbelief, blindness, and darkness. And the Bible actually has tons of metaphors to talk about this disconnection or this separation. Romans 5 says that before Jesus, we were actually enemies of God, highlighting the fact that this separation, it's not just a passive separation like blindness or disconnectedness, it's actually there's an act of hostility on our part towards God. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our transgressions, It says also that we were foreigners and strangers. We didn't know God's promises. We had no stake in them. We wouldn't benefit from them. It says that we were without hope and without God in the world. Romans 6 will say that in seeking freedom from God as if there was such a thing, we've actually become enslaved. There's all kinds of metaphors. ones of us being lost sheep, a cheating spouse, uh, dead people, and more. But the point of all of it is clear. The Bible teaches that there is a severe separation between humans and God. And we humans can do nothing to fix it. And so, darkness is one of the major metaphors of the Bible. Now, it wasn't always this way. There was a time in human history that was much brighter, Many of you are familiar with the early stories of the Bible. When God created the world, he planted a garden in the east, the garden he called Eden, this land of paradise. And he placed the first humans, Adam and Eve, to live in the garden to work it. And at that point, everything in the world was just as it should be. People were in perfect relationship with each other. They were in perfect relationship with God. They enjoyed intimacy and just a life of overall bliss. But if you remember, one day Eve believed the lie that Satan told her. Believed the lie that God is not good, that he does not have her best interest at heart. And so she ate the forbidden fruit, the one that God had commanded her not to eat, and she gave some to Adam who was standing there with her, and he did the same. And at that moment, a fracture entered the universe, distorting all of God's good creation. And since that time, the fabric of the cosmos has been irreparably torn and there has been a chasm between humans and God. And every human heart from then on has suffered from that decision. But not only have we suffered from it, we have in our own madness endorsed it And repeated it over and over again. Every person in this room, myself included, have believed the same lie that Eve believed, that God is not good. We have acted the same way that Adam and Eve acted, rebelling against God, rejecting his goodness and beauty in the world. And the Bible is clear that there's no one exempt from this. It says all have sinned, even the best of us. This is what uh, theologians will sometimes refer to as the fall. And A.W. Tozer, he's a, a really good author, and he writes this in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, For whatever else the fall may have been, it was most certainly a sharp change in man's relation to his creator. He adopted toward God an altered attitude, and by so doing destroyed the proper creator, Creature relation in which, unknown to him, his true happiness lay. The point that he's making is that we, as a whole human race, and each of us as individuals, we have cut off the branch that we were sitting on. We have rejected God Himself, and as a result, we are blind. We are stuck in unbelief. We are living in darkness. And to live a life separated from God is to live in darkness. And the sad news is that we live in a world of it. It's it's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. But more to the point is that there's a world of darkness that lives inside of us. And that's exactly what Jesus came to change. Now you should know though that this darkness doesn't always look dark. It can. It can look gross and grungy, like all the typical things you might think of some kind of substance abuse or um, some kind of addiction, uh, uh, sexual promiscuity or pornography, um, violence, whatever it may be. It can look dark, but it can also look quite presentable. It can also look pretty responsible and well-dressed, It can be a subtle arrogance and an inner judgmentalism. It could be a self righteousness. In fact, many people don't even know that they're in darkness. And if you were to tell them, in fact, some of you may even be thinking now, I'm not in darkness, but you are. We can be deceived, but whatever form it takes, a life of darkness is ultimately a life of separation. And that's the core issue. The core issue is the separation. And some of you, I don't know which ones, are still in darkness. Some of you remain at this moment separated from God. And if that's you, you're in the right place. Because Jesus said he came as a light so that we would no longer remain in darkness. He came to bring you out of it. You don't have to stay there See, there's nothing that you and I can do to fix the separation between us and God, but the good news is we don't have to. Jesus makes the point in this statement, yes, you are blind, you are stuck in unbelief, you are in in darkness, but that's why I've come, to change that, to fix the situation. Going back to this list of metaphors Uh, Instead of enemies, Jesus makes us sons and daughters of God. We are fellow heirs with Christ. He makes us fellow citizens instead of foreigners and strangers. He opens our eyes to remove the blindness. He heals our sickness. He brings us back into the sheepfold. He welcomes us back to the Father. He makes us men and women of light. It's all about what he's done for us. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we no longer stay in the darkness. We are no longer spiritually blind. We are no longer stuck in unbelief. He has saved us. Because when Jesus lived a perfect life and yet died a life of condemnation, or died a death of condemnation, he experienced all of those metaphors to their extreme total darkness, the adversary of God complete separation and yet when he rose again he made it possible that whoever would believe in him did not have to suffer that same consequence of sin. So regardless of what your darkness looks like and we've all got it we are all connected back to God we all brought back into the light through Jesus Christ. It's all about what he has done for us. Now We're doing a sermon series on discipleship and the process of discipleship is a process of transformation. It is ignited and driven by a fascination with God and this is how it happens. If you remember last week, I said we start at at the trailhead of taste and see and it is on the basis of our belief in Jesus Christ, the goodness of God in a person that this process begins it is our belief in Jesus on the basis of our faith in Him that God makes us something different than what we are. It is in response to His goodness in Christ that we start to live in the light. And so, what I want to do now is I want to turn a corner and say, for those who do believe in Jesus, for those who are believing that yes he is who he said he was i agree with the harsh diagnosis of my darkness and my sin and i put my faith in him what does it look like now to live in the light to live in the light in terms of that connection with god what does that mean well first off it means that you're not the boss anymore And that's actually a really good thing. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are under new management. And when someone asks the question, who's in charge around here? You no longer raise your hand. And that's a good thing because all of us, we clearly aren't that good at management. Okay? We need someone else to be in charge. The first step is to dethrone ourselves. And instead of being Lord of our own life, we become a servant to Jesus who is the Lord of our life. Jesus had a follower, uh, a disciple, one of the original 12, named Thomas. And uh, if you've ever had trouble believing, then you're in good company, because that was Thomas. Thomas infamously doubted the resurrection of Christ. Some of the other followers had seen the risen Savior, and they told Thomas, he's back from the dead, he has been raised, and Thomas says, I don't believe that. Until I can put my hand in his side and see where the nails were in his hands, I will not believe. And Jesus graciously agrees to the deal. And so he meets Thomas and he says, put your hands in my side, see and believe. And Thomas at that moment when he sees, he drops to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Those words, those five words expressed the belief of Thomas. Thomas. And so they must express our own belief. He is our Lord and our God. It is not simply enough to agree with the ethical teachings of Jesus. We actually have to embrace him as Lord and Savior in every practical way. When he calls us, he calls us to follow me, not just listen to me. Now, we do need to listen to him, obviously, but follow me. This means that he's Lord and, he, and we are not. We now begin a life of discipleship or I have a friend who calls it a life of apprenticeship where we learn from Jesus how to live and we imitate him. Uh, the apostle John who wrote this gospel, he actually writes an, a later letter called First John which is a very creative title and he says, he actually didn't give it a title but um, it's, uh, it says First John 1, 5 and 6 it should be up on the screen here. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him. The message that we heard from Jesus. And that we proclaim to you. That God is light. Okay? So remember, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is another way of expressing that God is good. And in him is no darkness at all. So not only is he just good, he's totally good. Perfect. Okay? Now if we say that we have fellowship with him... If we claim to have fellowship with the one who is light, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So he states it sort of negatively here, but uh, the point is to claim fellowship with God is to live in the light. There's not a category for someone who claims fellowship with God and lives in darkness. I guess there is a category, liar. That's what John says here. And so now, if we believe in Jesus, we live differently. As different as light is from darkness. We live life the way that Jesus tells us to. I I have a friend, I I may have just mentioned this, who says he actually prefers the term apprentice to disciple. Because in the same way that an electrical apprentice will learn from a master electrician the, the tools of the trade and how it's done, so we too learn from King Jesus the trade, if you will, of being children of light. We learn from him how to pray, how we read the Bible, how we should interact with other believers and how we should interact with unbelievers. We learn from Jesus how we should think, how we should feel, how we should speak. And this apprenticeship encompasses all of life, not just the spiritual things. There's not, um, there's not a teaching in the Bible that says, okay, you've got this box of faith in Jesus over here, just go ahead and tidy that on up and then come over here and do everything else. No, this, this apprenticeship encompasses all of it. And so this friend of mine who prefers the term apprentice, he encouraged me. I told him I was changing spark plugs on my truck. And he said, well, you should ask Jesus to help you with that. Uh, but he's a carpenter. Um, <laughs> but but it, it, the point was clear that Jesus knows everything. He knows what size of wrench I need. He knows how to get to them. He knows about your home repair projects. He knows when to buy and when to sell your real estate, what kind of stocks you should invest in, how you should do your financial planning. He knows about every single subject on the planet. He knows what kind of parenting will work for your kids. He can help you cook dinner. He can help you with your time management and manage your calendar in a healthy way. He knows about personal relationships. He can guide you through either the family joy or the family drama that you're going to experience on Thursday during Thanksgiving. (laughs) He can help you. It's sort of a joke, but really, he can help you know if you need to say something or you need to just keep your mouth shut and let it go. He can help you with that. He knows about getting out of debt. He knows about guiding your teenager through those awkward years. He knows about the college experience. He knows about solar energy, fishing, salesmanship, scuba diving, aviation. He knows how to build a shed. He knows how to garden. Am I making the point? He knows everything, not just the spiritual stuff. When Solomon was given the wisdom of God, if you read, it it says he knew about botany. He knew about zoology. He knew just things that, like, I don't know, Kings in the ancient areas don't seem, you don't just click when you think of a king in the ancient areas. He knew everything. And Jesus is even smarter and wiser than that. The point is that in this process of transformation, the light shines over all of life. There is no part of our life that's not touched by it. And so what I want to do now is I want to move to six uh, very Uh, practical, tangible characteristics of every disciple, regardless of your age and stage, gender or occupation, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a person who claims to have fellowship with the one who is light, then this is what it would mean to live in the light, okay? Now, I want to be careful giving lists uh, because it could be just legalism. It could be a kind of a crushing thing. And so you got to think about this as sort of a hinge point I'm assuming as we look at this list that whoever is doing these things is already a believer in Jesus, that the process is driven by an intense desire for God and his glory and his goodness, okay? If that's not you, you're totally welcome this morning and I'm glad you're here because you'll get kind of an inside look at what it's like to actually be a follower, okay? Now, uh, this comes from a larger list. I'll be pulling from it every week, and I'll have hard copies next week out in the foyer. But if you want the full list, um, uh, that it's a list of a uh, mature disciple, all the characteristics, all the major characteristics of a mature disciple. If you want a digital copy of that, just write disciple profile on your Connect card, and I'll make sure one gets emailed to you. Okay, so here we go. A disciple, number one, loves God, with his or her whole being. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is this, Abby mentioned it, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is uh, pretty much everything I talked about last week. So a practical step for you, if you weren't here last week, is you could hop online or grab the podcast and you could just listen to last week's sermon and consider the goodness of God and all um, all of his goodness to you. Find out what stirs your affections for God, what warms your heart towards him, and do those things. So if there's an author that when you read, he, commun- he or she communicates biblical truth in a way that just clicks with you, read those, that person's books often. If there's a musician, again, it's gotta be biblical truth. Um, if there's a musician who sings truths of scripture or a particular song, listen to it. Often, in worship, whatever it is that kind of like helps your heart to burn for him, do those things often, okay? Second thing, a disciple has a growing love for and understanding of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus, the fact that he is the one who has brought us out of darkness. So regularly rehearse the gospel to yourself, You should try to memorize verses that succinctly tell you the gospel. If you want a few, I'll give you two that are really good. Romans 5, 8, it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners or rejecting him, Christ died for us. Okay, it's a nice gospel message right there in one verse. Okay, you could do 1 John 4, 9, and 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. My encouragement to you would be to memorize those verses, and don't just memorize the words, but but chew on them, meditate on them. Remind yourself regularly that in Christ, you are already accepted by God, that in Christ, you are secure in God, that in Christ, you are significant to God. There is nothing you need to do to bring yourself into the light, to Add to what Jesus has already done, okay? Jesus said when he was on the cross, it is finished. If you're a person um, who's been going to church for a while, this would be a good exercise you could try. If you think to yourself, I feel like I've got a good handle on the gospel, uh, a cool little exercise you might try is um, write the gospel down in five sentences or less and see if you can articulate it. Or maybe if you're going to be the person praying over the meal on Thanksgiving, see if you can pray through the gospel and not just for the food. You should thank him for the food too, but go through the gospel. What I'm saying is see if you can articulate it. Understanding the gospel also means, part of this is understanding our identity as as redeemed sons and daughters of God. This is a great place uh, to plug our organic heart change workshops that happen periodically uh, here at the church and in other places. They focus pretty much entirely on your identity as God's son or daughter. And so if you haven't done that, I'd encourage you to um, sign up for one and look into it. Okay, number three. A disciple has a growing love for and understanding of God's word. Okay, I work at a church. You knew this was coming. Read your Bibles. Okay. <laughs> um read it read it read it and don't just read it study it uh, i have one i had one friend who gave me some helpful advice about reading um and he was talking about it as a whole but this is true of the bible there's kind of he he said three different levels there's like reading like where you're kind of just trying to go through pretty quick and just get the birds eye view of what's happening there's like reading where you're going a little bit slower and you're taking a little bit more of it in and you're kind of starting to notice some details and things and make connections and then there's like reading where you're going through every word and you're looking at subject and verb and you're like kind of dissecting it almost with a magnifying glass. My encouragement to you would be to do all three of those. Mix them up. The point is that we need to know his word. To stick with the light metaphor in other places of the Bible, it says, your word is a light unto my path. We can't see without it. So I'm going to give you just a few practical suggestions. If you're a person that's wanting uh, to grow in your understanding and your engagement with the Bible, here's a few things you could do. Uh, First, every once in a while, our church hosts uh, what I call Bible marathons, where you read through a whole book of the Bible or multiple books in one sitting with a group of people. I know that sounds intimidating. It's like binge watching a show, but the Bible. And uh, you talk to anyone who's done it, it is nowhere near as intimidating as it sounds. Once you do it, it actually feels like the time goes by pretty quick. It's a really great way to soak in Scripture, okay? Second thing, um, get a Bible reading plan. (laughs) For a long time, uh, after I became a believer, I would... Just open up my Bible and be like, all right, well, this is what the Spirit wants me to read today. And there's nothing totally wrong with that, um, but have some intentionality. Plan what you're going to read. You plan vacations, right? You plan how you're going to spend your day. You you plan all kinds of things. Why not plan reading God's Word? And if you're a person that uh, doesn't read it a lot or you're not super familiar with the Bible, that's okay. Um, There's Bible reading plans for beginners. In fact, when I worked at camp... um, You know, I'd have 6th, 7th, 8th grade kids often wanting to start reading the Bible. But dude, if you're in 7th grade and you're reading through some of the really confusing stuff or some of the really technical stuff, it's easy to lose track. And so I found this great plan. And if you want it, just let me know. It was called the Bible Reading Plan for Beginners. And the point is to help you see the forest before you start looking at the individual trees. So um, don't freak out on me, but it skips some parts. It skips like the really confusing, the really technical stuff in an attempt to help you just understand the larger story. And so if you want that um, and you're just like, hey, I kind of need to start there, um, just write Bible reading plan on your Connect card and I'll make sure you get a digital copy of it, okay? Um, Bible Project. You Google Bible Project, that's a great way to engage with Scripture. They've got videos, podcasts, notes, helpful resources on pretty much every book of the Bible and uh, lots of biblical themes. They're a good way to connect with it. There's a, a great ministry called Bible Study Fellowship. And it's got meetings all around the Portland metro area, all around the world, actually. And we host one here on Tuesday nights. My wife goes to one on Wednesday morning, and she loves it. In fact, of all the things that my kids are involved in, I think Bible study fellowship is probably one of the best in terms of them understanding Scripture. Um, so, whatever it is, engage with the Bible in some way. A, a super easy one um, that you guys are, you're pretty much halfway there already, is go to our Bible Explorer classes. It's called a Bible Explorer class. It's, it's to help us understand what the Bible is, and that's right after the main services downstairs. There's people teaching scripture um, every Sunday apart from just the sermon, okay? All right, I, I've beat that drum long enough. Uh, number four, read your Bible, and then number four, pray, a disciple prays regularly, constantly giving thanks, You know, prayer, it's one of those funny things that's really easy but really hard, right? It really doesn't take that much to pray, but most of us oftentimes find ourselves pretty easily distracted or making lame excuses for why we don't. And we believe, or at least we say we do, the power of prayer, and and we maybe have a token prayer here or there, but we rarely take time to really pray in a deep biblical, serious, concentrated way. And my goal here is not to make you feel guilty, um, but if we're gonna be children of light, this is an area where we need to be growing. And so um, I'll share with you what worked for me. A few years ago, I was feeling like, dude, I'm a total loser when it comes to prayer. Like, I can't stay focused for more than 30 seconds. And uh, and I needed somewhere to start. And so I was encouraged to set a timer, uh, for five minutes, I actually bumped it down to three because I needed training wheels. And so, if that's you, there's no shame. Start somewhere. But I set a timer for three minutes, and I committed. Okay, I, I will pray for three minutes, even if I'm just repeating myself or just being quiet. But I'm not gonna go um, start my check my email. I'm not gonna do this one quick thing. I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna pray. And then pretty soon, for at first those three minutes, it was like eternity. But pretty soon, that three minutes just wasn't enough. And then you bump it up to five, and then to seven, then to ten. I would encourage you to start there. If that's where you are and you've got no real direction in your prayer life, start there. Just a small time of concentrated prayer. And I think a reasonable goal, there's nothing magic about this number, but a reasonable goal, I think, for everyone in this room is 20 minutes daily of prayer. And if that sounds already like, whoa, start at three, okay? (laughs) Start small. That's okay. Um, so find a time of the day that works for you and make it happen. Secondly, make corporate prayer a habit. Um, Your individual prayer life is actually influenced by your group prayer life. There's like this weird relationship where if you do more of one, the other seems to be better, Um, and so pray in groups. If you are part of a small group, you should be, I hope you guys are praying together regularly. Uh, Every Sunday morning, we meet from 8.30 to 9 down in room 11. There's about five or six of us, and we meet every Sunday to pray over all of you, over the service, and over just a number of different things. I would encourage you, make it a point to come to that. Um, Even if you can't do every Sunday, do once a month. Do something. Um, Also, just a heads up, you don't need to do anything about this, but you should know, uh, in January, our church is going to be doing a week of prayer. There's going to be opportunities um, every day to get involved in prayer in some way. The reason I'm telling you is that oftentimes the way that stuff works is uh, all us normal people write it off as that's something only the super spiritual prayer people do. Okay? So I'm telling you now that's coming and that's for the not super spiritual prayer people. Okay? Um, that's for those of us who are just wanting to grow in some way. So when it comes, don't resist, just embrace, okay? Uh, Number five, a disciple is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is pretty hard to measure. I can't tell you to set a timer and be filled with the Holy Spirit for five minutes, okay? Um, The best explanation I can think of comes from Romans chapter eight, where we are no longer controlled by our sinful tendencies. We still have them, but we're not controlled by them. We are controlled by the Spirit of God, which means we start to want what God wants. We start to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And there are a number of things that the Bible would give us in terms of what, what we could do in terms of being filled with the Holy Spirit, but we have to understand, we don't tell God what to do. Um, Jesus says, the wind blows where it will, and he's talking about the Spirit. Um, But Jesus also tells us in Luke 11, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The teaching is very clear. And at the end of that teaching, he says, the father, uh, even though you who are evil know how to give good good gifts to your children, how much more will the father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, if you've been in the Christian world Uh, very long you may have heard that teaching and usually you'll you'll be applying it to just kind of prayer in general which I think is right but let's just note he specifically says the Holy Spirit and so my step for you is ask in faith and I believe God would lead you down the road of being filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants to give it to you. He's on your side, okay? But a disciple is filled with the Holy Spirit. Number six, number six, a disciple obeys the commands of God. First John five three says, "This is the love of God, not or excuse me, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome." Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen, "If you love me, you'll obey my commands." Now, um, here's a soapbox, okay. Um, Popular Christianity today seems to want to divorce these two, loving God and obedience. And what you end up with is a distortion of both, okay? They are tied together. We love God and we keep his commandments. There's, there's not a, a um, contradiction in those at all. In fact, they are in, uh, inseparably tied together. Now, think of it like this. Um, I don't know if any of you have had a job that you totally hated, um, probably most of us at one point in our life. But even if the job itself isn't fun, if the people you're working with are cool, it makes all the difference in the world, right? In fact, you could even have a good job with people that are really hard to be around and it makes the job itself less doable, less enjoyable. When you're in good company with people you enjoy, people you love, it makes the work itself easier. And it's the same way with God. We love him. We enjoy him. So that his commands, even though some of them might be tough, they're not burdensome. They're easy. They're easy for those of us who love him. Now, we'll be growing in this area all the time, but the point is that we're not constantly resisting him. God, God wants us to obey. He'll help us to obey. And so the practical step for you here. Is that if you know that God commands something, then do it. I mean, this is, this is Nike. Just do it. Um, you, if you know what God says and you know you're disobeying, stop. Um, this will mean that there will be times when we need to repent. We need to say, Lord, you have clearly said this. I have clearly done this. Please forgive me. And the good news is, that because of the gospel, because He's the one who brought you out of darkness, not you yourself, you'll always be forgiven. You are already his son or his daughter. You can be assured that he will forgive you. He will let you back in. He will help you obey. So, Lord, I'm sorry. Help me. Help me to obey, and he'll do it. Now, so those are the number six. There should be a full list here. I, I really went back and forth on whether or not I wanted to give you a list, because um, I get nervous. Because there are some of you who have a pretty sensitive conscience and you're looking at this list and you're like, well, I'm zero for six. (laughs) (laughs) I I just, I'm totally failing. Um, My hope is that you don't walk away with that this morning. That you don't walk away crushed. Remember that discipleship is primarily a God-driven process, meaning these six characteristics are ultimately things that he brings about in us. Now we do have a part to play We do respond to his goodness, Um, but I just want to remind you that Christianity, it's a religion of grace, okay? No one here is expecting perfection, okay? So even if you made it up to that 20 minutes a day and then you 18 one day, it's no big deal, okay? Um, it's, It's all good, but if we're going to be children of light, these are areas that we need to be paying attention to. These are areas, these are ways that we can practically respond, and so, my suggestion for you is to find one area out of those six. One area where you feel like, alright, that's what I need to work on. That's, that's the one thing I feel weakest in and so I'll come up with one practical, tangible step to grow in that area. Relying on the grace of God, asking for His help, remembering that the fuel for that is the goodness of God in the person of Christ. Okay? Remember that Jesus came so that we would not stay in darkness. My whole goal in this list is to help us just get practical at one point about what it means to live in the light. Okay? One last thing and then we'll be done. We cannot do this alone. Um, I've gotten a couple of comments about doing a discipleship sermon series and um, the sense I'm getting is why haven't you talked about mentors yet? Um, And... Here's where I'm talking about mentors. Uh, You can't do this on your own. There are other people in this room who are further down the road of discipleship than you are in some of these areas. Find one of them, ask them to help you. And so, if you're looking at your one out of six that you're feeling weakest in, see if there's someone else in this church who's good at that and ask them to teach you. So, if you're the person who really needs to grow in Bible um, reading and prayer, find someone here who seems to know Scripture and love it, and ask them if you can like, do a Bible reading program with them, or just meet with them every once in a while, and ask for their help. God has designed it so that we cannot do it on our own. We certainly need him, but he's also designed it that we would need one another. So that's more next week, is what it looks like to live in the light together as a family. So let me pray, and we'll talk more about that next week. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. We desire to live as children of light. We desire to walk in the light as you are in the light. So I ask God that you would please empower us to do that. I pray for those this morning that may still be in darkness. Father, would you bring them out of the darkness? Would you bring them into the light of life? John 1 4 says that in him was life and that life was the light of men. I pray that they would enjoy true abundant life that Jesus gives. Lord, for those of us who do believe, um, help us to know specifically what we can do, how we can respond to your goodness to walk in the light. We ask that in your holy name. Amen.